I'll be honest with you folks, sometimes an amen is just not enough for me. I, I gotta, yeah, I, I appreciate the amens and everything, and amen to amens. I just, that choir anthem this morning and then that song, there's gotta be a yippee, a hurrah, there's gotta be something. There's gotta be a clap, there's gotta be something. Mercy. Yeah. The Bible's all full of expressions of how people physically worship the Lord. They, and, and half of them we don't even provide for by the way we sit in church. Right? We can't kneel and pray. Right? We bump ourselves, our heads in the chair in front of us. None of us are going to respond to the Word of God and lie prostrate on the floor. Right? That's Nehemiah chapter 8. Right? Right? There's a lot of things we just can't physically do, but there's some things I think we should. And after songs like that, that's not praise and glory to a choir, to a quartet. You're all, you're all enthused by the content of the song, right? And um, take your black hymnals out, and let's read the last verse of the last hymn that we sang together, O Love Divine. I want you all to know what you were when you sang that hymn together this morning. Because I think it directly ties, like so much of our music did today, to the content of our text. O wanderer come, number 98, right? In your small hymnals, number 98. O wanderer come, on him believe. His grace by faith receive. Wake up. Awake, arise, and hear his call. The feast is spread for who? For all. When you sing that song, understanding that Colossians 3, in the context of worship, and Ephesians 5 tell us, they teach us that we sing to one another, admonishing one another songs and hymns and spiritual songs. In the context of worship, you all have become ambassadors of the gospel. You're imploring others to know and to hear and to receive the gospel. Isn't that correct? I didn't know if you realized you were doing that when you were singing. But that's what you all taught me today. You reminded me that the context that we're going to see in Romans 10 this morning, as you turn your Bibles there, is exactly the context that this song underpins. And we're going to take this truth... Okay, we're going to take this truth and we're going to unpack it to demonstrate for all of us that we have an obligation to uh, share the gospel with everyone. Now, before we look at the immediate context that we're going to consider this morning in verses 14 to 17... I want to look at a greater context of what we've seen so far in chapter 9 and chapter 10. For those of you who are guests, if you need a Bible to follow along with, just lift up your hand. Maybe you forgot your Bible in the car and you don't have a Bible on your device. Um, but uh, lift up your hand, or ushers will find you and give you a Bible to follow along with. We're in Romans chapter 10. We like to just study one book at a time at Grace, the morning service. We're studying Romans, and 
evening service. We're studying Acts, so come back tonight after the Lord's Supper. We'll continue in that study. But I want to look here uh, at chapter 10 and verse 20. Let's go to the end of this chapter where Paul says, as he quotes Isaiah, and Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. Now, obviously, Isaiah is quoting the Lord there from his own prophetic book in Isaiah. And Paul just quotes what Isaiah quotes of what the Lord says. The Lord is proclaiming here, I have a people, those of you that have been with us through the study understand his people are the Israelite people, the Jewish people, but the Lord is proclaiming here in this particular part of Isaiah that there are many who found him who were not his people. Now, go back to chapter 9 and look at verse 30. We've already looked at this. The good news came to Israel first. All of them, only a remnant, believed. But what did we find out then when we look at verse 30? What shall we say then? The Gentiles, the non-Jews, all the men of the world who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness even the righteousness which is by faith. Now let's go back to what we looked at at the end of last week's sermon in chapter 10 and verse 13. What do we find out? For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be what? Will be saved. We know that the message of the gospel, which was clearly defined for us in the first eight chapters of the book of Romans that we looked at last year, is a, is a message that we've all responded to, and it's a message we want all of our friends and relatives to know, that salvation comes through Jesus Christ alone, and, and what a great salvation it is. Our hearts are grieved when people don't respond to that message that's been sung, that you've sung to one another, that we've read about here in Romans. Our hearts are grieved when people don't respond. And, and how do we get over that grief that's so deep in our souls? Paul reminds us in chapter 9, we get over that grief by understanding God still saves. He saves Faithfully, he saves. Mercifully, he saves. Righteously, in his own sovereign and unique way, he saves. And that's what God does. And then we continue to get over this grief, as we saw chapter 10, verse 1, by Paul describing his own desire for his religious family and countrymen to be saved, so he prays for them. And we ought to do the same for our religious friends and family. We ought to be constantly praying that they would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But chapter 10 outlines for us man's typical religious response to God's desire to save them. And what do we find out from their religious response? We, we find out that they have a desire to, to maintain their own legalistic approach to gaining access and favor with God. They, they can't let go of their religious knowledge, their extra-biblical, their outside-of-Scripture knowledge of how they're going to get to God. And, and that's true of all religion, isn't it? We don't have to stand up here and talk about particular churches and names of churches and religious leaders and so forth, right? There's only one way to God, and that's through 
faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. The rest of the world is just trying to religiously work their way into his favor. They may believe Jesus Christ in a particular religion, but they never believe that he's enough. But for the Christian, the Bible teaches that Jesus is enough. He was the sole source of our salvation. And as we turn from our sin that he died for and we place our faith in him, the Bible says we're born again only through him. Not a pastor, not a church, not a body of people. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So man's response to God's overture to save is, I want to put a tighter grip on my religious practices. I want to hold on to my religious family history. I want to depend on these man-made means of grace, so to speak, where I can gain favor with God. I want to obtain righteousness by the law, good works, rather than a righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. What we find out here embedded in chapter 10 is just not a religious man's response to God's overtures to save. We find here in the middle of the chapter an obligation of the faithful to the religious. Not just the religious, as Paul says, we'll pray for them in chapter 10 and verse 1, but to the irreligious Remember, we started off by looking at chapter 10 and verse 20 and chapter 9 and verse 30 and chapter 10 and verse 13. The Gentiles are more often ready to respond to Jesus Christ than the religious are. The religious feel like they've been spiritually all packed up and they're ready to go, even though they're going with with a little fear and a little doubt and a little emptiness in their soul. They're just kind of hoping that their religious activity gets them through. And they've done more good than bad. But it says here the Gentiles, those who are without religion, are more often more ready to respond to the simplicity of faith in Christ alone. And so again, packed right here in verses 14 to 17 is now our responsibility to both the religious and the irreligious. If this church grasps this immediate context within the chapter context that we're discussing, this will ensure the existence of this church for generations to come. Amen. We haven't read the verses yet, but if you get this, and when I say you get this, I mean every one of you understand this, It will guarantee us a spiritual progeny, a multi-generational spiritual progeny until the Lord Jesus comes. And why I'm emphasizing this before we read this, the text is before us, and if you've already read it, that's fine. If you don't, don't look down yet. The text that we're going to study this morning is so familiar to us, and it has been preached so often in our stripe outside of its context it has brought the ruin of the church. Many churches of our stripe are plateauing and declining and going out of existence because they've mispreached 
this text. They've preached it. And they've preached it with a singular application. And we're going to study that, right? We're going to, by God's grace, allow this text to speak for itself. It may slaughter a particular sacred cow that we've been used to embracing. But as that sacred cow is slaughtered, we can again get back to the reality of each one of our own individual responsibilities to make sure both the religious and the irreligious are reached with the gospel right here in our own town. Right now, let's read the text. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent just as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good tidings. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith come by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Again, we've discussed man's responsibility to respond to the gospel. But what is the believer's responsibility with the gospel towards the religious men? And now we know irreligious men as well because of whoever calls upon the name of the Lord. Right? 10.13, because many Gentiles will respond 10.20 and 9.30. What is our responsibility to all men now? Okay. It's outlined for us here uh, in these verses. So I'm going to divide these verses up into four particular points. Write them down if you're a note taker. Try to remember them if you're an audible learner. Right. And we are going to, expeditiously as we can, hustle through the first three so that we can focus on the final, the fourth point. First of all, all of us need to understand that your lost friends and family need to comprehend the gospel. They need to comprehend the gospel. Number two, your lost friends and family, if they comprehend it, will be gripped by it. They will be convicted by the gospel. Number three, your lost friends and family need to submit their wills to the gospel. So first of all, they need to comprehend it. Secondly, they'll be gripped by it. Thirdly, they've got a responsibility to surrender their wills to it. But finally here, you must understand your part in the whole process. So, first of all, your lost friends and family need to comprehend the gospel. One author said, faith depends on knowledge. Faith depends on knowledge. One must hear the gospel. And isn't that how he begins in verse 14? How then will they call on them 
all right, in whom they have not believed, and how will they believe in him whom they have not what? Heard. Hearing, in this context, implies comprehension. It implies understanding. He goes on to say in verse 14, and how will they, what? Hear without a preacher. Now go down to verse 17. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith depends on knowledge. Hearing here implies understanding. What are they hearing? Well, they're hearing from you the content of the gospel outline. The way Paul outlines it in the first eight chapters. They're understanding, they're comprehending the gospel understood as the righteousness of God in Christ explicitly and not just religious faith. They're understanding that their dependence on the righteousness of the law means nothing unless it results in the righteousness of God in Christ that only comes to one by faith alone. So your friends and family need to comprehend here, which implies understanding the content of the gospel. And they need to hear that from you. And that's where we go in just a little bit. Number two, your lost friends and family will be gripped by the content of the gospel you share. Because the gospel plainly explained, thoroughly and plainly simply explained, always evokes emotion. Doesn't it? Think about that. The gospel clearly, simply, and plainly, may I add graciously and lovingly explain, always evokes some kind of emotion. When people hear it, sometimes they don't like it. They get, they get angry. Hmm. Are you going to tell me? No, 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 no. My religion is good enough. Or if they're irreligious, listen, man, whatever heaven is or whatever life is after this place, I'm cool. I've created my own destiny and I've created my own life. And nah, I don't need this Jesus. Who is he anyway? Did he ever exist? He's some kind of mythological? Nah. Or in an unbelieving way, they might respond this way. Don't tell me I'm a sinner. And Jesus died for my sin. Who are you to tell me? I'm generally a pretty good person. Well, haven't you ever sinned? Well, yeah, well, everyone has, but I'm not a murderer. Right? A lot of worse people in this world than me. The gospel clearly, simply, plainly, graciously, lovingly explained always evokes emotion. Or if the God of heaven's drawing them, what's their response? Wow. I'm that bad? And Jesus died for me even though I'm that bad? I can't believe he loved me that way. Oh my. You mean for me to get rid of the guilt of my sin is, is that profound but that simple? 
I can, I can be born again. I can have a, a new life that starts within and have all my sins and transgressions forgiven and remembered no more and be given life in Christ. Yes. Wow, really? How quickly can I do this? Amen. The gospel always evokes emotion, my friends. If you say that you're witnessing and you're giving a gospel that does not evoke emotion, I would challenge you that possibly you're probably not giving the full gospel. Okay. How do we know this from the text? Where do we see an emotional response in the text since true saving faith demands, demands an emotional response? What does verse 14 say? How then will they what? Call on him. How many of you remember the day you were saved? If you can't remember the day you were saved, I'm hoping most of your arms are tired. How many of you remember the day you're saved? Get your hands up. If you're saved, raise your hand. All right, wait a second. You have to understand, when I put these on, I can see everything here, but I can't see you. So put your hands up. I want to see who's saved in this room. Come on. All right. Amen. If you're not, leave your hand down, and that's cool. I want to talk to you after church, all right? Because I love you. How many of you remember calling on the name of the Lord the day you were saved? Was that completely a non-emotive experience for you? No. You were gripped by a message. You were compelled by omnipotent grace to believe that you were the worst sinner on earth even though you've never murdered somebody. You were like, I don't care who else is in this world. I need Jesus. Lord, save me, please. Right. The gospel requires an emotional response. You call out of desperation. You call. You cannot be saved in a ho-hum way. Oh, yeah, check that off my list. Who prayed that prayer? Check. Good. Next. On my bucket list here, yeah. Got that God thing done okay. See my point? Once gripped with the reality of your sinfulness and your total former dependence on religion alone or in your irreligiosity and your own pride, every soul drawn by God the Spirit becomes overwhelmed with their desperate need to turn from their sin and call on the Lord to save their soul. My father often recounted to us, I don't know why he told us so many times, but he would often tell us the story of when he was a boy of almost drowning. And, and uh, he was a great athlete, but he was never a good swimmer, which is really weird to think about. You know, even a good athlete that doesn't have swimming lessons usually can at least doggy paddle, right? But uh, I think it was when he was nine years old. He was out swimming in a, in a water hole, as they called it in the country, with some of his friends. And he knew he couldn't swim, but they, he swung out on a tire over this water hole, jumped off, and there he is, right? And, uh, you know, you struggle. You know the drowning process. Maybe some of you have almost drowned or seen someone drown. And so... You try to make it on your own, and when you realize you can't make it on your own, what do you do? You do what? 
Yeah, you call for help. Nothing emotional in that call for help, is there? I mean, you say, hey, you know, I'm about to die, can't breathe, got this stuff stuck in my throat, can't, can't even kind of even yell for help. Uh, I'm in trouble. Rather not die today. You know, I'm looking forward to dinner with my family. I got a date, <laughs> you know. Really don't want to miss that date. Come on over here and just kind of pull me out of the water. That'd be really nice if, if you could just kind of sacrifice your time. It's only going to take about 30 seconds, but... If not, I'm chill. You know, we just kind of be done with this thing. <laughs> you guys get what I'm saying? I know it's facetious, and I don't mean to be over-acoustic. But I'll tell you what, we live in a day and age where faith is handled in very caustic ways. It's easy come, it's easy go. Everyone's got faith. It's my faith that gets me through life, Right? It's my faith this, my faith that. And none of these people have had a crisis moment in their life where they actually called, screamed out for help because of their own desperate situation. It's here. It's in the context. Often overlooked, especially in our own relationship and responsibility to the gospel. Remember how we stated our points your friends and family need to comprehend the gospel. Your friends and family need to have an emotional response to the gospel. And they will if they properly understand it. Okay. It's right here. Okay? They'll be gripped by it, to be sure. Comprehension and emotional response to the gospel are necessary, but also we must understand our third point, your friends and family need to submit their wills to the gospel. Faith requires surrendering their heart, soul, mind, and strength to Christ as Lord. Notice the word believe in the context. In verse 14, it's used twice. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe? The sad reality is some won't believe. Verse 16, right? However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says... Lord, who has believed our report. If you understand grammatically what the usage of the word believe here is and within this immediate context, you will understand it to mean that this is a surrender of an individual's will to what they've comprehended, to what their heart's been convicted and gripped by, and they're saying, Lord, I submit. It literally means to place yourself under a singular authority. And boy, our world just does not like that. Increasingly, 2 Timothy chapter 3 even tells us that as the times grow worse and worse and wax worse and worse, people will not like submitting themselves to any kind of authority, let alone a singular authority, let alone a singular authority that dictates what happens to their soul eternally. They don't like it. But regardless of that, we need to compel them to believe. Once they understand the content and you see their grip, we need to be the ambassadors of invitation. Are you ready to believe now? Are you ready to place yourselves under now the authority of Jesus Christ and let him be Lord of your life? Because it's a great life. What did Jesus say? I have come not only to give life, but to give life more 
abundantly. Free. All right. So, our fourth and final, where we'll spend the remainder of our time this morning. You must understand your part in the whole process. It's very simply outlined here, and we want to unpack your responsibility in this process. And this is where most of us that have grown up in Christianity that have heard multiple sermons on this immediate context in the context of missions conferences or in the context of pastors speaking direct address to pastors or future training pastors in training, this is where you'll have a tendency to check out. This is where we really need to stay checked in. Because this is where the sacred cow slaughtering is going to happen. Okay? And I think you'll all be okay with it. But some of you might wrestle with it. What does faith also require? Number four, you must understand your part in the gospel process, and faith requires each Christian to be an ambassador of the gospel. Well, where do we notice this? Realize this in, this, uh, in our context. I want you to notice the use of the word they in this context. Most usages of the word, the pronoun they, refer to the religious or the irreligious, just the unsaved person. There's two usages of the word they that refer to the messengers of the gospel, you and I, who've been saved. We're going to kind of detail this because I think it's important. So how will they, verse 14, how will they, the religious and irreligious, call on them whom they have not believed, and how will they believe in whom the religious and irreligious they have not heard? And how will they, the unsaved, hear without a preacher? Now look at how verse 15 kind of changes. How will they preach how will the saved preach unless the saved are sent? It's interesting, isn't it? Go down to verse 16. However, they did not all heed the religious and the irreligious, the good news. So again, a number of usages here, mostly referring to the, saved, the unsaved, two referring to the saved. Now I notice, I want you to wor- notice the word preacher here. Obviously, they've got to hear, they've got to comprehend. Remember, that's our responsibility. And how will they hear without a what? Without a preacher. And how will they preach unless they are sent? So the unsaved needs a preacher, a proclaimer, And the saved need to be proclaimers. This is not difficult to understand, but often, like I said earlier, misunderstood within the context. These pronouns are almost completely glanced over in most sermons on on this context. Why? Because most people say, well, I'm not a preacher. I'm not a pastor. I leave the proclamation up to the professionals, the trained professionals. We've got to remember here, there is no direct address in this immediate context to trained professionals. 
Certainly because of 2 Timothy 4 or 5, every pastor is to do the work of an evangelist. But here we have three points before we get to this final point that includes all of your responsibility to help those comprehend, be gripped by, and surrender their life to the gospel. Every soul here drawing the circle around themselves and saying, this is my duty. I am the ambassador. And what do we know about this word, preach or proclaim? A Greek word some of you are familiar with in its root, keruso, within the context of the whole New Testament. It just simply means anyone that's excited about a message. As a matter of fact, this word keruso was used in this Greco-Roman culture long before it was in reference to Bible preachers or gospel proclaimers. Okay? I don't want to be irreverent at all, but if we're going to understand history, we've got to understand a lot of the world's words that are used in the Bible. Right? Had a contextual usage in history long before inspired scriptures prioritized those words for spiritual purposes. Right? A philosopher in Hellenic period, a Plato, a Socrates, an Aristotle, was a proclaimer. They were a preacher. Someone trying to obtain a political office would have been a proclaimer of their particular standpoint or political position. Anyone that was passionate about anything that proclaimed it in a public fashion was a preacher, was a proclaimer. In our most recent history in the United States, we've got some loud preachers, right? Ladies, there's the Me Too movement. And I certainly hope if you've ever been sexually abused, you speak up. Right? So your violator can be prosecuted as they should. Speak up. Preachers, praise God for ladies who are speaking up, who are always fearful for their own soul's sake, for justice' sake. Praise God. In Washington, D.C. this week, we had a high school that led a whole nation into a no more movement, right? No more guns. Did they preach? Sure, they stood on a pulpit, the hundreds of thousands of people, and they proclaimed very loudly and very clearly what they wanted. That's all a preacher is. Now, wash your brains of all that and think about the context now. We too are proclaimers. Every one of you who has been graciously born again, we're excited about a message. And we are all the preachers here. You are the ones who help them hear. You are the ones that walk them through their emotional response to what they hear. You are the ones that invite them to surrender to Christ as Lord. And the assumption is here that all of us are in touch with some religious or irreligious people that God could have been drawing, probably is drawing unto himself to be included of whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Is it a, isn't it a joyful thing when a preacher gets people persuaded to follow them? Think about all the preachers in the world. What's their goal? They want a platform to get followers. Everyone wants a platform. Dieticians want a platform. 
right? Weight trainer guys, right? Sports guys, they want a platform, right? Everyone wants a platform. Why? To gain followers. There's all kinds of preachers in the world, but for us who are saved, we are unique preachers. We are unique messengers. And notice the word sent here. Verse 15, how will they preach unless they are what? Sent. Who are the sent ones in this dispensation? It's not just the guys who are paid by churches after deputation to go over the pond in foreign countries and start churches. We've got to, dis that's the sacred cow we're slaughtering. As a matter of fact, that's its last application. Its secondary application are us sending church planters out to start churches in our Jerusalem and Judea and in our country. That's the secondary application. The primary application is Paul speaks to Rome as these people live within that city that they themselves have religious and irreligious people around them that they are closely associated with that are in need of Jesus Christ. Their Jerusalem, Rome, their city is their primary application. Every single one of them. And they are to pray. Remember Paul? Romans chapter 10 and verse 1. He took this upon himself as an ambassador. I pray. It is my desire that all my friends and family would be saved. So with the prayer comes an expectation of opportunity to speak. And then we're certainly ready to speak. So guess what? It's not just the missionary and the pastor and the church planner who have beautiful feet. How many times have we heard, those are the dudes with beautiful feet? No, 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 no. All of our feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel. All of us are ambassadors. All your feet, even though your spouse may not think so, are very pretty. They're gorgeous, right? Regardless of bunions and ingrown toenails and, 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 and viruses and whatever, all those ugly things that feet have. The ugly feet that take the good news of the gospel are beautiful feet. Right? All of us. That's what the text says, isn't it? The responsibility is our glory the salvation of a soul is the Lord's glory. That's up to Him. Our glory is to obey. His glory is to save. That's why your feet are beautiful. And that's why our God is eternally beautiful. Because He's faithful, merciful, and righteous to save. I want to notice one final word here in relationship to our personal responsibility, and that's the word report. Verse 16, the second half, Lord, who has believed our, what? Report. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Underline the word hearing in verse 17 and underline the word report in verse 16. They both come from the same Greek word, the same root. Now, we would not hear them the same in our language, would we? So what the Apostle Paul is actually saying here is he quotes Isaiah 52 and verse 7. 
right? Lord, who has believed the report, the hearing that they've understood. And remember I said within the context, hearing implies understanding. And our responsibility to be clear with the content, the handling of the emotional response to the content, and the handling with an invitation to have them come to Christ. Who has believed our report, our clear teaching, so faith cometh from clearly understanding the message given, declared, and hearing only comes by what? The proclamation of the word of Christ. Salvation only comes through Christ alone. And folks, uh, I know you know this, but Isaiah 52.7 and Nahum 1.15 are both quoted here. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of, uh, of good things. And uh, both those contexts are are tremendous contexts of God demonstrating his mercy to those who would not yet believe. What's mercy? God withholding from unsaved men what they truly deserve, right? So you are ambassadors of the mercy of God. The longer God allows them to live and breathe is the longer his extension of his mercy is to them. And your feet are beautiful because you get to be the people that are instruments of his mercy, telling them, look, life is short, time's running out, today is the day of your salvation. I love you, I've been your friend for a long time. You've seen Jesus in me, you've heard Jesus from me, now will you trust him? Will you trust him? You know, the older we get, the more precious the message of the gospel becomes to us, doesn't it? It certainly was something that transformed us the day we believed it. We were certainly excited about it. But the older we get, we see the world with just a little bit bigger picture, don't we? Right? The older we get, we don't get caught debating about the gospel with anyone or contending with anyone about the gospel or through just mere apologetics trying to win people to the gospel. We just see the world with two kinds of people in it, those who are with Jesus and those who don't have him. And then we try to befriend him so they can see Christ in us and hear Christ from us as we pray. This message has no value, does it? It's infinite in its value. And God's called each and every one of us to be ambassadors of the gospel. You are all preachers. Any more amens? <laughs> Just check it. I know we're closing up and wrapping up and you're like super hungry right now. A little toasty in here. We are all preachers. We are all preachers. All right, we are all preachers. We are all preachers. All right, three quarters of us. All right, we are all preachers. All right. Is that because you believe it? (laughs) All right. Now, remember I said if you get this message, if you get this message, what does it ensure? a multi-generational existence of this church for the gospel's sake until Jesus comes. The gospel obligation is too much for just a handful of people to care for. It's not just up to me. Thank God. It's not just up 
to a guy in his mercy that God used like a Billy Graham. You know why God used Billy Graham? Because there was about 70 years of the church's existence where the church wouldn't do it. So he used one to meet millions. And now his intention, we find out, is for millions to each reach one. Think about it. We're all preachers. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you for the simplicity of this text within its context. Certainly, Scripture is a whole lot more enjoyable to understand. Let's understand in that fashion. I pray that each saint here would continually take our, the ownership of their responsibility as the Apostle Paul did in, Rome, in Romans chapter 10 and verse 1 to begin to pray. Have a compassion that's ever mounting for the religious and irreligious around us. And Lord, allow each one of us to at least win one. Allow our preaching to be effective. Lord, long before we preach, we're going to have to relate and befriend and love, care for those who don't have Jesus. So give us patience, Lord, to build redemptive relationships along the way of being able to ask them to surrender to Christ. So Spirit of God, work within us, work through us, work out of us to see our community bow their knee to their creator in salvation. In Christ's name we pray, amen.